The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, make their ears heavy, make, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, a remnant, a fraction, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. And the holy seed is its stump. It's Isaiah 6. I find Isaiah's prophecy as a whole to be incredibly fascinating. We have 66 chapters of the prophet's life in which he is constantly attempting to beckon to Israel, his nation, his people, simply with this one message. Repent! Repent of your sin! And this chapter specifically seems to mark his commission to prophetic ministry. So he's, uh, you know, there's 66 chapters total. We get to chapter 6, and here's the commission. This is his origin story of sorts. But there's already five chapters preceding this text, so it's kind of an odd chronology. He begins the book by prophesying, and then we we get the story of his commission. So perhaps Isaiah decided to forgo a linear timeline, uh, a a chronological timeline, in order to emphasize his thesis instead. When I was a student in college, that was what they told us in all all of our classes for our papers. Begin with your thesis. Tell me what your book is about. That's a tip for college students. You know, begin with your thesis. Begin with your main point. And I think Isaiah is doing exactly that. And his thesis is this. Your worship is disgusting. Your worship is bothersome. Your worship is nothing to me. Isaiah 1 uh, opens with this uh, heart-wrenching proclamation against Israel because their sacrifices are insufficient. They are unsatisfactory because their heart is not with them when they sacrifice. Verses 10 through 15 say this. Uh, Chapter 1, 10 through 15, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Those are not kind names. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. What a weight of sin it must be when your sin is a burden to God. 
I think this is metaphoric imagery. God doesn't get tired or burdened. But then he says, I'm weary of bearing them. Like, this is powerful language. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It is a terrifying and provocative way to begin a book. (laughs) But such a beginning, in my opinion, is evidence enough of the inspiration of God's Spirit in its writing. Because right from the start, it speaks to me. God reminds me, through Isaiah, that true and, and proper worship is not the songs I sing on Sunday. And it's not just the money I give and tithe. And it's not just the prayers I lift before a meal. It's not even the words that I'm preaching right now necessarily. These may all as well be equivalent to burnt offerings. These are analogous to exactly what Israel's doing. To the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. But should I be rife with sin and stains of innocent blood and joyfully abiding in my pride and my hypocrisy, then my offering is nothing. And I have made no true sacrifice. It's an unfortunate thing, I think, that in many minds, not all, I don't want to generalize here, but in many minds the term worship is limited to the liturgical practice of singing songs on a Sunday, at a Sunday service or simply attending on Sunday morning. And many of us may not believe that this is the way that we think about worship specifically, but there are subtle ways in which I think we do, and I think it shows up most in our language, how we talk about worship. Uh, here's some examples. When someone says, what's the worship style like at this church? Well, the connotation is that, well, what's the music sound like? Who leads worship? Who's the song leader? Uh, I really enjoyed worship today. I liked the way the music sounded. (laughs) I liked the sermon even. Our common language seems to limit this term to the music played on Sunday mornings or to the the sermon, but, you know, for some uh, transparency here, personal transparency, uh, my role here at the church is worship pastor, and part of that is music leading. But I mean no offense uh, when I say, or I don't mean to sound like I am offended. I'm not at all. But I know that in some people's minds, and a, a synonym of worship pastor for a lot of people would be music minister. Now, again, I'm not at all offended by that, but that is intentionally not my title. When I was interviewing for this job, I wanted to make it clear that I viewed this as a teaching position. I remember pointing out that, you know, part of my role is not simply just leading songs, but it's to teach the language of Scripture, to teach truth about God, to sing and, and teach others how, how to understand God, how to think about God, so that uh, in your daily life you might have opportunity just in your own mind, to just contemplate and rejoice in God because our lives are not simple or easy. My hope is that you're learning how to pray. My hope is that you're learning how to approach God with your burdens and your sins, uh, how to bless his name in the midst of your suffering. That's what worship is. I hope you're you're learning how to live full lives of worship in which you can come to God and, like Paul commands us, offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice, perfect and pleasing to God. Because worship is far more than simply singing Jesus songs together. And I know that because Isaiah reminds us that it's entirely possible to sing songs about God together, but never once actually praise him. So as I continue this morning, we're going to look a little bit deeper at biblical worship, how how that uh, looks in scripture. And specifically, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 6. I read it up front because I think it's an incredibly powerful uh, chapter and it's worth reading together collectively, but I'm going to break it down a little bit too. Um, So I think that uh, right here, we're going to start with reading from Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
It's a beautiful image. It's this, it's this cosmic image. It's this, uh, this picture of these angels singing above God and, and, and communicating with one another about the holiness of God. And yet there's still this image of, it says that the, the train of his robe filled the temple. So in Isaiah's mind, he, I, I think he's probably sitting in, in a room he's familiar with, the temple of Jerusalem. It's weird. There's this, there's this level of transcendence, this holiness of God, and yet he's in a place that he is intimately familiar with. The transcendent is becoming imminent with him in this particular moment. But imagine seeing God sitting on this throne, the throne of righteousness and judgment. And these odd and some may even say scary creatures, the seraphim, are worshiping God. I don't know if you've ever like heard memes or, or you know, Google search like biblical angels and found images of people like renditions of these things. They're not like beautiful creatures. I think that's why they say, hey, do not be afraid whenever they show up, because they're not like like normally speaking, beautiful. I think they're beautiful in, in a holy way, but in, in a very like strange way, they're unsettling. But they echo these words, holy, holy, holy. That Hebrew word is kadosh. And when repeated in this manner, it emphasizes the exceptional and unmatched nature of its recipient. The angels say, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. The triple repetition is a Hebrew grammatical tool and the only definitive one of its type within the Old Testament. So this is a very unique moment in all of Scripture. In all of the Old Testament, this is a very particular moment of worship, a very particular moment of revealing God's glory. It's to simply say this, the one who is holy in this context, the one who we are worshiping, the Lord, is the epitome, the peak of all holiness. This word kadosh really has no meaning apart from the one who is kadosh. He gives kadosh its very meaning. And this chapter perhaps gives us the best uh, picture of the magnitude of God, of his holiness, of his glory. And I think this is where worship truly begins. Number one, I think that worship begins with acknowledging who God is. Worship acknowledges who God is. And who is he but the Lord of all creation and all of his splendor and majesty, his righteousness and glory, his sweet perfection and his tender love. Who is our God? Please, I would like some participation. Someone tell me, what do you know of God? It is necessary that the people of God know how to talk about him, how to sing about him. Would someone please tell me, what do you know of God? God is good, absolutely. What else? Creator. creator. God is creator, sustainer of all things. What else? He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Yeah, omnipresent. What else? Conqueror. Conqueror? Yeah, he's a winner. He wins the fights. Yes, indeed. Worship begins with the basic acknowledgement of the truth that God has provided our every need. He has brought to us, each and every one of us, salvation by the blood of his own son, and he is good to us. He is gracious and slow to anger. And in its purest, perfect definition, God is good. In a time like this, as we're talking about the character and the nature of God, I find it incredibly appropriate to read from the Psalms. So I'm going to read from Psalm 96. And I, would even, uh, I don't have it on slides. I would actually just ask you if you wanted to close your, close your eyes and, and visualize the picture and even participate a little bit in it. But here we go. The simple truths of the holiness and glory that is due God our Creator. It says this, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. He's glorious and powerful. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth and say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The psalm is simply saying, sing to the Lord and acknowledge the depths and the heights and the riches and abundance of his very good nature. You, as a part of creation, join with her in praising the name of our God. Lift high the name of Jesus through whom salvation has come. I, I love the image of, very often in the psalms, there's this image of like trees clapping their hands and the oceans dancing and, and beasts stomping a cadence along the grass. All of creation beckons and bellows for the praise of our God. So we acknowledge and praise the gift of his spirit which dwells among and within us. We acknowledge and praise God for his reality, for his majesty, his strength, his throne. He's in control, his kingdom. We are with him. And all this is how we begin to worship, praising God simply for who he is. And in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah has an equally logical and emotional reaction out of uh, this uh, witnessing, right? So verse uh, 4 through 5 of Isaiah 6 says this, uh, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the, one of him, uh, the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Uh, NLT would say, It's all over. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In witnessing the holy and perfect nature of God, the one who presides over all things, Isaiah comes face to face with the very stark reality of his nature, of his own situation. He knows that his sin makes him unfit to stand before the Lord like this. And I imagine witnessing glory in such a state as this would make any normal man or woman desire death. In fact, God told Moses on Mount Sinai, you, you, I'm not going to let you see my face. My glory is too much for you. You will surely die. Uh, anyone who sees my face will surely die, but I'll let you see my back. I'll walk by, and you'll get a glimpse of my back, but I will not show you my face. So Isaiah here, I think, also is getting a little bit of a shroud. It says that the room filled with smoke, so I think he's, there's some cloud, some, some sort of protection God is offering him so that he does not witness the fullest sense of God's glory. But Isaiah's response is still totally reasonable. He has spoken lies and deceptions. He knows that his lips are unfit, unclean. His sin makes him a part of the world's problem. Surely he is, in fact, unfit to be in the temple at this time. So in the same way that worship acknowledges who God is, worship reveals exactly who we are. When we sing praises to God, we know exactly who we are. And who are we exactly? Well, I would say apart from God. Have I not known salvation? Have I not known the work of the Spirit, the seal for salvation? I would say this of myself, and perhaps you would say the same. I am an idolater. I am a liar. I am a cheater. I am wrathful and lustful, and I am arrogant, and I'm proud, and I'm mean, and I'm brutal. And I'm hateful and selfish, and I am deserving of no good thing. I'm depraved. We are depraved and destitute, unholy, unrighteous utterly broken and morally bankrupt, entirely without hope. Apart from God, the fact of the matter is, this is true. Paul reminds us of this too. And speaking to the church at Corinth, he, he makes a case. He has this list of sins that he lays out in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And I know we've all fit in here somewhere, maybe even in between places, maybe in all of them, maybe in multiple. But this list is not an exhaustive list of all sins, of all unrighteousness. It's a list of examples. It's a pretty long list, but there's a lot more to go. And Isaiah knows that he fits in this list somewhere. And when face to face with the glory of God, the weight of guilt and shame is pressed upon him to the point that maybe simply dying would be better for him. But Isaiah is not permitted to die here. So instead, he is compelled to repentance. He enthrones God and acknowledges him as king. He says, mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He knows he's unfit. But it's pretty clear that he abandons his sin in this moment. Let me ask you, have you had a similar experience to Isaiah in this? Have you ever experienced the glory of God in such a way that you came face to face with your sin? You were burdened by shame and guilt, maybe? If you have, I'm certain that it was painful, excruciating even. But I assure you that guilt is a good thing. That is the spirit communicating with you, saying, hey, there are things that you need to set aside. You are of new flesh. You are of a new body, a new creation. The world, and even some churches today, would promote a false doctrine that uh, shamelessness, guilt-free living, is today's moral imperative. Don't feel bad for what you do or how you act or how you feel. You can't help it. You're just trying to be you. No, that is not the case being made here. Shame and guilt serve a very specific purpose for God. To reveal and enlighten yourself to sin. Don't allow shame to devalue who you are as God's beloved child, but allow guilt to do its work that you might set aside the old flesh and put on the new flesh. Because the the fact of the matter is, by God's standard, we have lived shamefully. We do stand guilty. But in the aches of our shame and guilt, God tenderly and graciously leads us to repentance. And in repentance, God offers to us perfect and sweet atonement. Another thing I love about Isaiah is this, that 400 years before Christ's atoning death on the cross, God offers him atonement by a burning coal pressed against his lips. He gets a prototype of atonement, a prototype of salvation, this, this early version, right? Christ doesn't come yet to, to do the atoning work on the cross, but God offers him forgiveness anyway, simply out of repentance. Isaiah 6, 6 or 7 says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah receives the gospel. He receives salvation. It's this picture of new life in God. So that now this man of unclean lips is purified. Now his lips are fit to prophesy and speak the words of God to Israel. Maybe this demonstrates to us the strangely reciprocal nature of worship. That when we humble ourselves before God, acknowledging who he is and who we are, we receive his blessing of salvation in return. In Isaiah's case, he didn't even directly ask for it. He just, he was like, kill me. And then God's like, here, here's some help. You know, he offers salvation simply because he knows who he is and he knows who God is. Worship is transformational. Isaiah is made a new creation. When we worship God, we are not left the same as we were before. Perhaps many of you have experienced this in your own lives. Maybe you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior in the middle of singing and praising God. Or maybe in the middle of a sermon. Or maybe in the depths of your sin and shame and you knew you needed help. Remember that list that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. through 10. Uh, he, he, you know, he lays out all these sins. You don't know the unrighteous will not find the kingdom of heaven. But he says this, following verse 11, he says, And such were some of you children of God, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the gospel, 
That when you repent and confess uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and are baptized in him for the gift of salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are cleansed of your sin like Isaiah with the coal and sealed for the day of salvation. This is the hope we've been talking about. This is hope changing everything. In Christ, whom you worship and magnify as creator, sustainer, and ruler over all things, seen and unseen, you are made new, transformed, and your old life is laid to waste for the sake of the new one. Isaiah is no longer defined as a man of unclean lips, but a man whose lips proclaim and utter the prophecies of God. In Christ and by the indwelling of his spirit, we likewise are new creations. The transcendent authority of all creation has drawn close through his spirit, and is now beautifully imminent among us. This is gospel good news. And for those who have already accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and have been baptized, I hope you know still that transformation is not an ending process. You, did not, uh, you were not baptized into a fully transformed new life, but you are in a, it is a continual process. You are constantly opening your heart to Christ with renewed willingness and praise to honor his name. You are constantly willing to repent of your sin and to seek righteousness. This is a constant transformation process. This isn't my conversion story. This was seven years after I, I, I was baptized. I was baptized fairly young, about, about seven years old. Uh, and then I remember when I was uh, at CIY as an incoming freshman in high school, uh, worshiping and uh, trying to give God as much glory as I could uh, in, this, in this room, in this sanctuary with a thousand other students. When I received the call to vocational ministry, and that pretty much set my entire path for all of high school. Um, probably looked different than what I thought it was going to look like at the end of my uh, eighth grade year. I was going to high school, and now I knew that I was going to go to Bible college. I knew that I was going to be a preacher. I didn't know if I was going to be any good at it. I don't know if I'm any good at it now. But to be honest, I'm glad God sent me here. I have no regrets. And I see the fruit of it. I see God's faithfulness um, in the midst of it ten years later. I have no regrets, but I know that I have been in a constant state of change and transformation since that day. Day by day, God is shaping and changing me into the image of Christ, and he is doing similarly for you. He is speaking to you, transforming you. If you have not accepted Christ yet, he has the opportunity to transform you and sanctify you in baptism. If you have been baptized and accepted Christ as Lord, he is still transforming you into his likeness, into his image. And as I uh, reach this point in the text and in, and in the message, I uh, just want to synthesize kind of what we've talked about up until this point with a, a, a single statement. Um, but to preface, I, I no longer look at myself in worship and see a man destitute and trapped in my sin. Instead, I see a life pulled from death and risen instead to eternal life with Christ my King so that sin has no hold on me. And my brothers and sisters, I know that for you this is also true. So maybe the best way to summarize up the point up, to summarize up the, po the points up until this point is this: worship is rejoicing in who God is in spite of who we were, and rejoicing in who we are now in light of who God is. But remember, worship really can't simply be truth claims. We don't make confession and walk away. How is that any better than meaningless sacrifices to Israel? Because I know that I can say all of these true things about God, all of the true things that he did. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I, I know this is true without ever offering up anything. This is a fact, but it makes no demands of me. But worship inherently makes a demand of me. Worship is sacrificial. I can see it immediately in Isaiah 6. As soon as he is, uh, as soon as he atoned for with the coal, he says this in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. Not a second thought. 
He says, I need someone. God says, I need someone. Isaiah says, I'm right here. Send me. In receiving atonement and witnessing the mercies of God, Isaiah is compelled to offer up himself to the messenger, as a messenger of God's word. He doesn't question it. He doesn't second guess. He doesn't pause for a second and say, what do you want me to do? I need to know the details first before I go out and do whatever you're asking me to do. Isaiah jumps at the opportunity. And I don't think God is forcing him to do this in any way, but it's pretty clear God is preparing him specifically for this task. Specifically, Isaiah says he's a man of unclean lips. And he dwells in the midst of the people of unclean lips. And he says, I'm going to purify your lips, and then you're going to speak my words. Isaiah has been prepared for this task specifically. Worship grants God permission to use us in whatever way he may deem necessary for us. Understand, our God holds us secure and fast in his right arm. He, uh, nothing he asks of us would jeopardize or remove his love from us. But when God calls you, how do you respond? My prayer for you and for myself day to day is here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. And maybe this means giving up those things you love. Maybe it means giving up someone you love or or something you hold dear so there's nothing keeping you from the calling. Maybe maybe it means abandoning uh, our, our treasures on this earth for the sake of the treasure of eternity. You know, as, as a student in Bible college, I've heard some crazy stories of sacrifice for the kingdom. Uh, overseas students would, uh, were called by God to come to Ozark to study for four years, become pastors, and they would go back to their home country. We had a, quite a few Kenyan students who would do this, and they would go back, and they would preach. And I know a lot of them suffered gravely on their way back. I, I have friends who are suffering at the moment. I have friends who uh, abandon their hopes and dreams of playing collegiate sports, soccer and baseball, whatever, in order to preach the gospel. There were others who abandoned lives of sin in order to love God more fully. There were those who forsook romantic relationships altogether because God called them to a life of singleness for the sake of their ministry. God said, whom shall I send? And these people said, here am I. Send me. And maybe this sacrifice promises no obvious or meaningful evidence of fruit. After all, that is what God essentially offers Isaiah in this text Uh, Verses 9 through 13 say, uh, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? This might be like the one moment of regret in in, in Isaiah's text. It's like, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, a remnant into a remnant, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God gives them the basic command. They'll hear you, but they won't listen. There's a difference. They'll see you, but they won't care. Uh, you'll tell them to repent, uh, but understand that they, you will be mocked and ridiculed more than anything. And maybe in this moment, Isaiah feels a hint of regret, right? How long do you want me to do this, Lord? I don't know if I can do this very long. And God doesn't say, give it the college try. He doesn't say, if it doesn't work, we'll figure something else out. He says, no, until there's no one there to even hear you. Until time has reached an end until even Assyria and Babylon and Greece and Rome and all these kingdoms fall away. 
preach until I say stop. And I think we have 65 book, uh, chapters within this book in particular to prove that Isaiah was faithful to that call. Because the fact of the matter is, Isaiah did preach to a deaf nation. He preached the words of God to a nation that did not listen to them. They uh, were enslaved. Babylon came, uh, did exactly as God said. Things are going to get rough for, for your people. They are not going to listen. And everything that God said came to fruition. Uh, Israel was uh, yet chained, and they, and they were dragged off to Babylon, and they suffered centuries there. And I know that maybe it's odd to look at that and measure that as like a successful ministry for Isaiah, that no one listened to anything he said. And maybe Isaiah never saw the fruits of his labor, but he was content in sacrificing his life, his time, his freedom, his desires, is simply to just be obedient. To simply just do what God said. To simply obey. To simply worship and honor the will of God instead of his own. And keep in mind, things like this are not uh, rare for the prophets. Uh, prophets suffer all the time uh, within the Old Testament. And God makes big requests of some prophets that I hope he never asks of me. Uh, <laughs> um, for example, we can talk about Hosea. Uh, Hosea, I would like you to marry a promiscuous woman, uh, and then she will cheat on you, and you will be hurt gravely. And I want this to simply just be an image of how Israel treats me. Like, hey, marry a promiscuous woman and use it as just like an illustration, <laughs> as a picture. You can't, I don't even want you to just like talk about it. I want you to demonstrate it for me, that Israel has been unfaithful to me. They have been a promiscuous bride to me. And then there's Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine the kind of like sores you'd get from that. But 390 days, that's longer than a year. Lay on your left side. And not only that, but I want you to cook your food over your own feces. That's not a joke. That's in scripture. That's rough. I can't even imagine longer than a year doing that. Horrific. But all of to symbolize just the horrors of Babylon. To simply demonstrate what it's going to be like there. That you're going to hate the food, you're going to hate the life. You will suffer gravely in Babylon if you do not repent of your sin. And again, they don't listen. But in obedience and offering of sacrificial worship, all of these prophets say, Yes, Lord. Here I am. Send me. I had a professor at Ozark uh, who uh, taught my Isaiah class. A lot of my stories are about Ozark specifically. I don't have a whole lot of great stories yet. I'm not a very, like, uh, you know, practice preacher. <laughs> um, but, you know, I can tell you stories about my dog, but they don't connect nearly as well. So, uh, <laughs> but I had a professor at Ozark who taught my Isaiah class. Um, he spent five or so years overseas before he was a professor there uh, in the Middle East, preaching uh, and teaching and, and sharing the gospel with his wife. And this country was primarily Muslim. Uh, and evangelism in such an environment, as you can imagine, is risky. Uh, it's slow. You have to be patient. Um, it takes a long time. It's scary. And there were plenty of times, he said, when he wondered why exactly God had sent him and his family overseas to be there. When it seemed like the fruit of his labor was so hard to see. He's not even convinced that he, like, I don't think, I don't, I think he said that he didn't baptize anyone while he was there. So, like, he, he's not even sure that he made conversions at all in his preaching. He preached. He was faithful. He was there. But he didn't really see a whole lot of fruit for his labor. And when we got to Isaiah 6 in class, he was teaching the class one day. We got to Isaiah 6 and he said this. I remember him asking the simple question, are you content in your ministry even if you have no success? Are you okay with the thought of your preaching, your teaching, your worship leading, your training, falling on deaf ears that are entirely unwilling to hear? 
Can you accept God's call to minister and preach the gospel? Even if you baptize no one, even if no one values you or sees your purpose there, are you content with living in obedience simply because Jesus Christ is entirely sufficient enough for you? Are you okay with no reward, no promise on this end? It's a massive question, and I'm preaching it to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you. I ask myself often, am I content with no success, no tangible reward here? I hope so. I don't believe that I've received a call quite to the level of Hosea, thank goodness, or Ezekiel, thank goodness. But I do know that in confessing Christ as Lord, I have received the call to pick up my cross daily and to offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is my spiritual worship. (laughs) The Apostle Peter, uh, he had his ups and downs in the process of accepting Christ as Lord. I'm sure we're all familiar. He he knew Jesus. He was, you know, often described as Jesus' best friend. You're probably very familiar with all the things Peter did wrong in the Gospels uh, when it came to just putting his foot in his mouth, talking a little bit too quickly, being a little abrasive. Uh, after all, Jesus does at one point call him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Harsh words. Uh, but Jesus said it, so I'm sure he deserved it. Um, <laughs> Peter is also known well for his three denials of Jesus at the night of Jesus' crucifixion. But at the end of John, we see his repentance and Jesus welcoming him back. The trajectory of Peter's life is transformed from then on. In receiving and upon receiving the atonement and grace of Christ, Peter goes on to be the first Christian preacher at Pentecost pillar of the first century church alongside James and John and partnering alongside Paul in preaching the gospel in Asia Minor. The first century is you know, kind of in his bag a little bit. He, he was one of the, the heads of the church, so one of the names, one of the, one of the big dogs, you know, the Iron Man of this group. <laughs> Early church history around the end of the first century recounts an event in which Peter goes to Rome in order to confront Simon the sorcerer, who uh, is preaching a false gospel. He's deifying himself You may or may not recognize Simon the sorcerer from Acts 8. Uh, He is a man practicing witchcraft who converts to Christianity uh, and follows Philip around amazed by his powers. But early church history tells us that his conversion to Christianity was disingenuous. All he really wanted was to seek power, and he thought the Holy Spirit was the best way to gain that. And so he goes back to his way of life, practicing a demonology and witchcraft. And Peter confronts him in Rome as he's preaching this false gospel. And the conflict leaves Simon gravely injured, but Peter, he, he's protected by the Spirit, and he flees. Because at this point in time, uh, Rome is uh, overseen by the Emperor uh, Nero, which is the, uh, the first emperor to uh, enact a full persecution of Christians uh, in the first century. Uh, it's a scary time to be a Christian, and Peter's going to Rome specifically. Uh, in this conflict, he causes a ruckus around town, and so now the guards and everyone else is kind of getting alarmed. And so Peter says, I've got a bolt. I've got to get out of here pretty quick. But as Peter reaches the main gates of Rome on his way out, he sees none other than Jesus Christ himself. He sees Jesus walking past him the opposite direction, carrying his cross and entering Rome. And I imagine Jesus probably looked very similar. I have a picture up here. Uh, Yeah, here you go. Uh, I imagine Jesus looked very similar to that, like he did the day that he was marching on his way up to Golgotha. And I imagine maybe Jesus' words to Peter pick up your cross today and follow me, echoed in his mind as well. And, and as Jesus is entering, as he passes by, he looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, I go to Rome to be crucified. And knowing that this is a chance for Peter to not make the same mistake he did all those years ago, he follows Jesus rejoicing, 
and under the reign of Nero, he is crucified, upside down, executed, saying, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Peter had his escape in the bag. He didn't have to turn around, but he found the promise of Christ to be sufficient enough for him. Can the same be said of us? Do we trust that Jesus is simply enough that he is worthy of your true and honest worship to offer up your body as a living sacrifice knowing full well that he holds you fast for the day of salvation? And to those who suffer illness, my hope for you is that you trust his mighty hand to carry you and to heal you whether on this side of eternity or the other. Do you trust that his spirit seals you for that day? Please trust that whatever happens, you and I both will be rejoicing with the saints in eternity Singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My prayer is that you all would trust him enough. My prayer is that his bride would see him as enough, that we would not be like Israel who abandons our God so quickly. We hold fast. Whatever might come in our direction, we would be steady. Hold fast to the perfect will and love of our God. I know faith is hard. It's hard for me day by day. But I am moved by many of our steadfast love for Christ, by your unwavering trust in his salvation. And I am moved and compelled by stories like Peter's and the other apostles. The other apostles all died on, on account of their faith. They were uh, executed. Uh, John was the only one. He went to exile over on Patmos so he could have the revelation. But he was alone for a long time. I can't imagine that that was much better than simply dying. I'm moved by the faith of brothers and sisters overseas in Afghanistan who are holding fast to their faith in the midst of their trial now. Maybe you saw this uh, video went viral online uh, I saw this week of a Christian brother, an Afghan Christian brother, uh, blurred out and, and uh, uh, muffled voice, so you can't really understand him, but he said, he said this, 20 years of work have been done away with overnight, and we feel abandoned in this field, but we will not leave this field. They are simply obedient until the point of death, professing the gospel of Christ. May we also be willing to offer our lives up in this way for this is our true and proper worship. Let's pray. My Lord and my God, you are enough. Whether or not I feel like that's true, whether or not I think that's true, it's true. You're sufficient. You are enough. You offer your loving kindness and salvation a gift greater than anything this world can offer. God, may we not be people who would seek to understand your ways and your thoughts, but be people who love and trust you in the uncertainty and know that you are good enough through it all. May we know that you have given us a promise in Christ Jesus for the day of salvation and that justice comes on your time. Let us not be people who first ask, how long, O Lord, but be people like Isaiah who first shout, here am I, send me. And we'll figure out the details later. We pray for our brothers and sisters overseas who at this very hour suffer grave loss on account of the truth of the gospel. God, would you protect them, have your hand over them. But may those who suffer there have the courage and the strength to still worship and to be willing to offer up their lives as sacrifices for you. And us here who suffer illness and disease, who wait patiently, may we not fall into a depression of hopelessness, but into the security of joy that comes with the resurrection life. We are promised nothing other than salvation in you, so God, please do not let us put our hope in anything but you. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praises. So we join with the seraphim today to simply say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory.
Amen. You may stand up and continue to worship.